It was the most bipartisan Senate trial in our country's history in that seven Republicans voted to convict the former president. That got you to 57. You needed 67. If you can't get to 60 votes on these facts with an issue this personal, with an issue this emotionally charged, where poll after poll tells you that the majority of the American public believed the president should be convicted, the first step is for Democratic senators to say, enough of this. This is not working and we're going to change it now. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Pantsuit Politics, where we sit down together twice a week to process the news, discuss what we've learned, and consider how we're thinking about it as citizens. We've got a lot to process and consider right now. We're going to discuss the Senate trial and acquittal of the former president today. We're going to talk about the aftermath of the insurrection in a very special conversation with Politico reporter Olivia Beavers. And we'll end, as always, with what's on our minds outside of politics. Before we jump into those conversations, We have some really exciting news. We are beyond thrilled to have been selected as a part of Spotlight, Apple Podcast new program where they highlight a creator or creative team every month that the editorial team thinks that you'll want to spend more time with. When they reached out to us, there was a little bit of like, wait, who who us? We are so honored that they have chosen our podcast as a member of Spotlight. You know, there are over a million podcasts on Apple Podcasts. And so to be recognized in this way is a really big deal to us. We take it very seriously. It is a testament Mm -hmm. to our listeners who for five years now have trusted us with their time and thoughts. We work really hard to earn that trust. We know that what we do improves by bringing more people into the conversation and having a greater diversity of perspective and experience in the community of people who listen to the show and interact with us. So if you are new here, welcome. We're so happy that you're here. If you've been here forever, thank you. Welcome back. And we hope to respect (laughs) everyone's time today and that you walk away with some new thoughts about your own citizenship as we process our thoughts about ours. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout.
So if you did not watch the impeachment proceedings, we wanted to give a quick rundown of what happened Friday and Saturday. So the House managers concluded their case. I thought it was really, really helpful how House Manager Jamie Raskin summed up the questions that the defense needed answered, which were, why did Donald Trump not tell his supporters to stop the attack? Why not stop the attack for at least two hours after it began? Why do nothing to send help? And why not condemn the insurrection on January 6th? I think that they really focused in on, like, what happened after the insurrection started. I thought his summation, very philosophical, quoting Thomas Paine and Voltaire was, you know, if you know Jamie Raskin, as I do, perfectly in character and just a really emotional, beautiful way to just call on our better angels to say, hey, like we have gone out of our way to make this case and not to draw on political partisanship, but truly citizenship and democracy and what is our commitment to these institutions. Prior to Representative Raskin's very effective closing, we had a little bit of drama on the Senate floor. You've probably heard about it. Because, as Sarah was saying, there was such a focus on what did the president know and when did he know it and how did he respond to it, some of the timeline came into issue. Representative Jamie Herrera Butler has been saying consistently since January 6th that she heard a phone call between Mm -hmm. Leader McCarthy and the president of the United States in which Leader McCarthy was asking President Trump to do something to stop the attack. Friday evening, she put out another statement imploring other people who know about the president's mindset to speak up as she has. And she recounted that she heard Kevin McCarthy on the phone with the president. And she heard Kevin McCarthy explain to the president when he said, this must be Antifa. No, these are your people. And then, according to her conversation with McCarthy, when he said, no, these are your people, the president's response was, well, Kevin, they must be more upset about the election results than you are, to which Kevin McCarthy said, who the F do you think you're talking to? So this is a Republican member of Congress who puts the statement out. She's clearly willing to testify if needed in the Senate trial. And a vote is called on the matter of whether witnesses at all can be heard from during the trial. And everybody thought things were going to wrap up pretty quickly on Saturday. And so the Internet was rocked when the vote went Mm -hmm. down and a few Republicans joined. Fifty five senators voted to hear witness testimony. And it showed how the Senate is really not made for unpredictable moments because it mm-hmm. just became very chaotic and all kinds of conversations start taking place over what's the form going to be? If there are going to be witnesses, how many? Are we going to depose people over Zoom? Are they going to happen here in the trial? Are there going to be depositions before they come back to the trial? What are we going to do? You have a Trump aide putting on Twitter a picture of a list of supposedly 300 witnesses the defense would like to call if witnesses are to be called. Mm-hmm. Ultimately... An agreement is struck to enter Representative Herrera Butler's statement into the record and to proceed to closing argument, which was exceptionally disappointing for people observing this trial who thought for a moment that greater factual inquiry was going to happen. It did not. The statement was entered into the record. The defense team did not stipulate to the veracity of the statement. I'm not sure that any of that matters anyway, because one of my big takeaways, Sarah, is that I think we need a different word than trial for what this proceeding is. You know, the defense team and the House managers did good lawyering in deciding to quell this chaos by entering the statement into the record. But there's not an appeal. When you enter something into the record as a lawyer, you're doing it to have it preserved for your appeal. This is it. This is the opportunity. It's a political process. You have witnesses in an impeachment trial for a completely different reason than you have them in a regular trial. Well, and I think that leads to all the confusion about, well, if they're jurors, how are 
Graham and Holly and Cruz meeting with the defense team. I thought they're supposed to be jurors. If they're jurors, shouldn't they be legally required to sit there? If you're a juror, you can't just up and leave and decide you don't want to hear anymore. It's like all of those conflicts and all of that frustration, I think you're right, is fed by the idea that this is a quote unquote trial. Not to mention the jurisdictional debate, like, well, can the Senate hear this? Well, oh, they settled that. They settled that jurisdictional question, but still people like Mitch McConnell are basing their entire vote on disagreeing with the jurisdictional question that had been voted on. You know, it's not like juries vote on jurisdictional questions. So I think you're right. I think that language and describing it as a trial and using acquittal and conviction in such a political process is harming all of our understanding of what this is. And it diminishes our trust in the proceeding to have these quasi courtroom Mm -hmm. moments. Most of the argument about jurisdiction was about precedent. What precedent does it set if we try a former official? Does anyone doubt for a second that if another Congress, another House of Representatives impeaches a former official, it goes to the Senate, we could get a completely different result. They'll just reexamine the question again, as they should, as they have the power and obligation to do. It's not binding precedent. You know, the other aspect that this kept coming up for me was that a couple of legal analysts who I really respect, Sarah Isger and David French, over at the Dispatch kept talking about how the House impeachment article should have been about dereliction of duty instead of incitement to violence. Mm. It should have been more focused on what did he do after this started. I respect that analysis and agree with it and think it would make zero difference in the way that anybody proceeded in the arguments that were made, in the evidence that was, was introduced. I think it doesn't matter at all in this context. It would matter enormously in a regular court of law, but in this context, it doesn't. And so I just think it's For purposes of trying to rebuild the way we feel about the United States Congress, we've got to figure out how to describe this differently. I struggled. You know, some of the group texts I was on were sending around takes that were like, this is just the the Democrats caved. They accepted defeat. We always go around accepting that things are over before they've begun. And I think that's really unfair. I think that is a very short sided shallow analysis that discounts the both devotion and honestly legal genius of the House impeachment managers. And I think that in the same breath that some of the political analysis of what was going on on the Republican side is shallow and short-sighted. You know, I think there's this analysis that, well, the Republican Party is just is doing well. Why would they change their strategy? And I don't think that's true either. I think that this says a lot more about the state of Congress, the state of impeachment as a process for a check on the executive than it does necessarily about the political strategies of either party. I think particularly There isn't much of a political strategy on the Republican side. There sure isn't a single political strategy. And I think you see one of many coming from Mitch McConnell from that speech of, well, we can't do it because he's out of office, even though you all know, every single one of you know that I delayed this process until he was out of office. And so what I really think is that he's awful and he violated his oath of office, but that that accountability needs to come from somewhere else. And I think you see it from what another strategy from the seven senators. I mean, it is, you know, in the history of impeachment, a large number of members of the opposite party voting for conviction. You see it in the statement of Bill Cassidy, which I thought was great. I voted for conviction because he was guilty. So I think you see a strategy there. I think you see maybe if not a strategy, a reflection of a movement or emotion or reaction in the censure of Bill Cassidy by these state Republican parties. Like, I just, I think there's a lot of politics. And honestly, I can't quite break the nut on, like, what is actually at the center of this, because I think the reality is probably there isn't one thing at the center of why we all feel so frustrated watching this president be acquitted. I don't think it's one thing. I think it's a lot of things. And 
that's what's so frustrating. I think it's just a total revelation of the brokenness of several processes and the brokenness of several political realities right now. And that's what's leaving us all very, very emotional in the spectrum from like angry and frustrated to brokenhearted and despondent. You know, I think we have a a large range of emotional reactions here because there is a large range of problems here. To the extent that there is something animating the GOP right now, I don't know how you describe it without saying it is all purely symbolic because the thrust of the defense in this case was that the very idea of holding President Trump accountable constitutes constitutional cancel culture. That's the phrase that his lawyer, Bruce Castor, used. That is the emotion behind everything you heard from his lawyer, David Schoen, from his lawyer, Michael Vanderveen. The trial itself was filled with one example after another that senators don't like to do real work. I'm delighted that they unanimously voted to give Officer Goodman the Congressional Medal for his bravery during the January 6th attacks. Juxtaposing that against the acquittal vote is depressing. Juxtaposing Mm -hmm. that against the catastrophe that happened when they even thought about bringing in witnesses, it's embarrassing. The fact that after the acquittal happened, you get this speech that you reference from Senator McConnell saying all of the reasons that President Trump bears responsibility for what happened on January 6th. But that's a speech, not a vote. And he's there to vote, not give speeches. Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating. And then you get this passage of a resolution congratulating Tampa Bay on winning the Super Bowl. Like, again, I'm delighted. But that's not what people vote for senators to go to Washington to do. And I was Mm -hmm. really struck by reading Senator McConnell's statements to Politico after all of this was over. As he tries to say, we are not going to be a party that is dominated by Donald Trump anymore. He's talking to Politico about his intention to get behind candidates who can win Republican primaries. And he says former President Trump will probably like some of those candidates and not like others. But here was the quote. The only thing I care about is electability. I know. I know. I read that and I felt flames shooting out of my ears. Like the only thing that matters in the function of our democracy is electability. Seriously? And electability, of course, matters because who you have there to vote matters a lot. But if that's where you begin, the only thing Mm -hmm. I care about is how we get numbers here. You're playing the game of survivor, not actually trying to govern. I say this every time I use this quote. I don't quote Dr. Phil a lot. But the one thing I think that he is is very helpful is when he says, how's that working for you? All you ever cared about was electability. That's how you got here. That's how you got here with Donald Trump only serving a single term with you losing the House, with you losing both Senate seats in Georgia is only caring about electability. How can you not possibly see that doing more of the same is not going to get you out of the place you are in? Oh, that's so frustrating to me. So my main takeaway in terms of what happens next from watching this proceeding is about the filibuster. Mm. It was the most bipartisan Senate trial in our country's history in that seven Republicans voted to convict the former president. That got you to 57. You needed 67. But what I was thinking about is that if you can't get to 60 votes, the threshold required to do legislating which is what this body is there to do. If you can't get to Mm -hmm. 60 votes on these facts with an issue this personal, with an issue this emotionally charged, where poll after poll tells you that the majority of the American public believed the president should be convicted, I cannot say enough about how much Democratic senator from Arizona, Kirsten Sinema, is my jam. I like everything about her. I think she is so fascinating and so interesting. And I just wish as a citizen that she and Joe Manchin, who are people that I tend to be pretty aligned with in a lot of ways, I wish that they would get together with some of the sort of centrists from both the Democratic and the Republican caucuses in the Senate and say, this was a game changer in terms of my thinking about the filibuster. I watched my Republican colleagues make a show of not paying attention, some of them during this impeachment. I watched Mm -hmm. as in consultation with my Republican colleagues, the Trump defense team 
went scorched earth partisan politics to defend the president, even as the House managers and Democratic senators have so steadfastly refused to do that. I took it seriously. I've taken everything that has happened to demean this process seriously. I watched my Republican colleagues threaten to not confirm President Biden's nominees and threaten to stall out every attempt at legislation if witnesses were called. And that tells Mm -hmm. me that some of us believe we're here to do the people's business and some of us don't. Some of us are here for another purpose. And I came here to get work done. And there are too many crises unfolding in America right now for this body to be stalled out. And because of that, I will vote in favor of eliminating the filibuster. I don't want to. I think it serves an important purpose. But everybody has to be here for the same reason for that purpose to be served. Yeah, I feel the way that you do about the filibuster. And I also think it is a reflection on impeachment as a process. Like to me, it's dead. You know, I think the founding fathers were they're trying to get at something. They were trying to get at a check and a way to remove um, elected officials from office and hold them accountable for their behavior. And it's obviously uh, not working if it ever worked. And to me, that speaks deeply to the check of the congressional branch on the executive branch and that we don't have one. And it it speaks to me, the brokenness of the impeachment process speaks to problems in both the executive branch and the congressional branch. And that us wanting to push too much authority to the executive branch and Congress, which I think is what you're speaking to with the filibuster, just wanting to abdicate any responsibility to do work. And I think this has been a problem for a long, long time. And this is exposing that. And you hear them saying it. You hear them retiring and saying, I I wanted to do things. Listen, I heard Senator Barack Obama articulate this exact thing back in, oh, my goodness, 2004, five, when I was a congressional intern. And he did a speech and he said, I came here to do things and we're not doing anything. So. You know, I don't think the answer is everybody drop out of the Senate and run for the presidency. I think this imbalance of power and this imbalance of ability to actually get things done is reflective in both the failure of impeachment and the need to get rid of the filibuster. And I recognize as someone who tends to think that the federal government ought to be our problem solver of last resort, not a first resort, that eliminating the filibuster will lead to the creation of some large federal programs that it will be almost impossible to get rid of down the road, that it will lead to the creation of programs that don't evolve fast enough and nimbly enough to meet some of our challenges. It will lead to outcomes that I don't like. That That's what will happen. And at the same time, Outcomes that I don't like that reflect the majority of what the American public is looking for should go forward whether I like them or not. And Mm -hmm. I just don't trust the reason that they are being opposed right now. If we had an opposition party for the purpose of making the majority legislation better, I would be really excited about that. But just preventing everybody from voting on it, that is so nihilistic and it's ruinous when we say like burn it all down whether you're saying that from the progressive left or the conservative right the result of that becomes what happened on january 6th and we can't Mm -hmm. have that anymore and so i think that the first step is for legitimately democratic senators to say enough of this this is not working and we're going to change it now. You know what I would say to Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin? Is that moderation has become this word that reminds me of how we talk about bias in the media. Like you're only moderate if both sides are equally mad at you. Well, that's not what moderate means. Sometimes when you're a moderate, one side's going to be furious and one side's going to be happy. Just like sometimes when you report on a story, one side's going to be mad at you, one side's going to be happy. The idea that you have to equally criticize both parties in order for a news story to be neutral or unbiased is ridiculous. And the way and it seems like that narrative has infected the way we talk about moderates, like the only way to be a moderate is to make both sides equally mad. No, 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 no. That's not what that means. And I think to me, like, that's what a little bit of what we're talking about 
with this this failure and this I feel like rot is the right word like this rot inside Congress where we can't get anything done is because we've decided the only thing that should happen is like you were talking about. Well, we're no, we're basically nobody's mad or we're all equally mad. No, sometimes people are going to be like you said, sometimes in a in a multicultural democracy, the majority is going to want something that's going to make just one side really mad. And it's like we've forgotten that. And that we have to accept things that we don't choose every time to because we prioritize living together in a multicultural democracy. So the trial is over. I'm using the word trial, even though I think it's the wrong one. (laughs) There is a real push this morning on Monday as we sit down to record to move along now. A real Mm -hmm. push. And I think that that's a mistake. And I think that what happened on January 6th is much too important to brush past. And I think even if we wanted to move on, we cannot do it. And that's what I think this very important conversation with Olivia Beavers, who is a congressional reporter and the author of Politico's Huddle, illustrates. It's just not available to move on right away. And we have to sit with what's happened. So we are so grateful for Olivia's time and sharing with us. And we hope you enjoy this conversation, too. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsuit. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit.
Yes, I was about four days in of this new job. And, you know, I've been covering the Capitol for a couple of years. And so at least it wasn't my first day up there. But it really sort of turned you around in just your understanding of how the Capitol is. And I've talked to a lot of people, whether they're staffers, members, police officers. You worked in a place where you didn't we thought was this sort of the strong institution. Mm-hmm. And now you you come into work each day thinking it can be breached. It's it's vulnerable, it's fragile. And, you know, even military people who say, you know, we're we're used to sort of these crazy scenarios of being in war-torn countries that this was different because this was our home turf. How does it feel to you in the Capitol as a reporter? I can imagine that there's a shift in dynamic because of the Biden administration's approach to press, but also that so many of you were there for the insurrection and also experienced the trauma of that event firsthand. Yeah, I've been to the Capitol a few times since the attack. And the first time I went, it was a few days after there had been a lot of cleanup done and I'm walking around the house chamber and, you know, I was part of the the evacuation out of the gallery, which was separate from the house floor, but we're all in the same built in the same room together. And it just was basically completely empty. You know, I wasn't seeing huge, you know, officers or, you know, authority figures around that area. And I'm just walking around and it's, it feels really eerie. And you start going, you can still see uh, different parts of the shattered glass. I walked by where Ashley Babbitt was shot. Mm-hmm. And and then I ran into a, a Capitol Police officer that I know. And, you know, they're not really allowed to talk to press. But he came over and asked how I was doing. And it was like one of those weird moments where I found myself crying, hearing his story. And he went to hug me. And it was one of those weird moments where it's like you really wanted that hug, but it's also COVID. And so you couldn't decide <laughs> what to do in that moment. And so, you know, pulled away, we're both wearing our masks, but there's certainly this new sense of unease. It's not just at the Capitol. It's that I have a text group with other female reporters who went through that with me. It's about six of us. And we're, we're talking about our nightmares. We're talking about our mental health and, and the help that we're seeking, but we're basically finding that Trauma sticks with you in ways that you don't always foresee. And, you know, members are talking about it more and more. But, you know, work was so busy for us right after that when you finally got a moment to breathe, actually, that's when the nightmares started to hit. So it's like a delayed reaction. And it's hard, too, because right after the attack, I published in the newsletter, my my full personal account of what I had seen and what I had observed in the best way possible. But with any major trauma, you're not you're not the perfect eyewitness. And I realized weeks later that I had completely blocked out this image of seeing the rioters. I told myself I didn't oh. see the rioters, I didn't see the rioters. And then I'm trying to compare a story and I'm I'm with a reporter friend of mine. I said, Did you see the rioters? And she said, Yes, we both saw them. We 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 gasped, oh my gosh. And that's just sort of, you know, your brain protecting itself. And now it's, the memory's there, but it's very fuzzy. It, that's sort of like one of the interesting parts is that you're a witness too to what happened, but you also need to be pulling in other information to make sure that, you know, you're not just relying on what you saw because so many people had various different experiences. I think that's really a beautiful reflection and an intense observation that we are depending on the traumatized to both help us understand what happened and to respond and lead us out of what happened. I mean, you hear it when Nancy Pelosi says the enemy is within. I mean, they were hunting her, and she is a human being. And you heard definitely heard it in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Instagram Live, like just the raw vulnerability of, I thought I was going to die. And I think that that is an enormous ask of people who are traumatized to help us understand what happened and to decide on the consequences. And I think that's sort of the tension is not just the sense of betrayal, but the consequences of the trauma that everyone in that building experienced that day. And I think there is this added layer that's hard to understand for people who have not ever 
worked in the Capitol of exactly what you said. You know, I, I worked on the Hill for about a year and I did a lot of Capitol tours. And there is this narrative that it is the safest place to be. And I think it reminds me so much of the school shooting I experienced as a high schooler, that this sense of this place that was safe, especially for for me, because my high school is one of the very first high school shootings. And so it's like this sense of like this place that was safe, that you had a sense of being safe and protected was not. And that's a layer of trauma on top of everything else that is that is very, very difficult to deal with. Yeah. And I don't think that that feeling goes, I mean, I, I haven't personally experienced that. So I don't know when that feeling goes away or if it goes away. And it's interesting to think about like watching the Capitol having to decide how to improve its security measures after something like that, but also how you're, you're trying to reconcile whether that still makes you feel safe or not, even if it's mm-hmm. not rational or rational. Those are, you know, especially going through that trauma, there were so many conflicting thoughts in your mind going through with the trauma. I felt like I felt stupid at points for carrying my backpack with me because I thought I needed to use it to protect myself. And then I was like, that's stupid. I'm not in that much trouble. But then clearly that was my fear telling me your life might be in danger and you need to take these actions, you know, and, and the decisions you make in the split second, I found myself in this weird medium where I was a reporter and I was also a person. And so I caught myself at some points thinking, I'm a reporter, so I can't be in trouble. I can't get hurt. And then, mm. and also then clearly saying, like, we're all being evacuated. This is clearly an entirely dangerous situation. Why wouldn't I be, you know, mm-hmm. in danger? How would they know I'm a reporter? And at one point, a, a friend of mine who I used to work with said, should we take off our badges? Mm. And because she didn't want to be identified as a reporter. And I said, well, then how are we going to get through the Capitol if we get evacuated? So... It's just sort of these dueling thoughts in our head of who are we in a moment of crisis? And that's not just a personal, you know, thought in my head. That's that's what we're seeing on the Capitol. Who are we in crisis? Mm-hmm. And the thing that when I have conversations on the Hill and I, I understand this sentiment entirely, this was probably one of the greatest tragedies to happen in our country in my lifetime. And one of them. And we couldn't in that moment have the various Republican and Democratic leaders come together in a sign of unity and say, this is not okay. We don't agree with Mm -hmm. this. And that is something that has stuck to Republicans who are reeling from this experience. It's stuck with Democrats who are reeling from this experience. And, you know, we couldn't come together when it mattered most. Well, I'm sorry to say, I don't think it ever leaves you the sense that like, once you turn on the part of your brain where you feel like you're in danger, like your life is in danger, it is very difficult to turn off that hard part of your brain. It is only through, you know, lots and lots of therapy and treatment for PTSD. But I still think about, you know, something happening to my children every time they go in a school building, like lots of people who have not experienced school shootings. But and I think that they're you're seeing that raw sense of both. You know, especially like we're talking about a couple weeks out from feeling like you were going to die. Like that is a very intense experience. And then for to ask people to not only get over that trauma, but like you said, to the sense of betrayal of like we couldn't even come together, that you didn't have my back. And not only did you not have my back, I feel like you're to blame for the fact that I felt like I was going to die. You know, that I think that's hard. And there's a sense of like, how do we piece that apart? I'm interested in like how as a, a reporter, like how do you report on politics wrapped up with this level of trauma? Like I think that that's very difficult to piece apart. That's very difficult to pull out, you know, much less your own response. But looking at somebody like AOC and her response to Ted Cruz, like I'd love to work with you, but you about had me murdered. And like that just the intensity of that. You know, it's funny because when I watched I didn't watch the whole video of hers. I caught it late and had to turn to the newsletter, but when she was talking about this pressure to move on, I have not had anyone tell me that, but I still felt it. Like I felt like Mm. this shame that the trauma still is with me a few weeks after. And at one point, does it become that okay to talk about it? Um, Mm. Does it become tiring or, you know, do people start rolling their eyes when you start saying this affects you? 
And I don't know. I mean, like on the right side, I have other people who went through that and we can talk about it. But, um, you know, when you're kind of describing it to people who went through it, you're so much more raw about what, what happened to you. Whereas with my mother who is not sleeping at night over what happened, you know, I'm, I'm saying I'm okay. You know, like you, the stories you tell about yourself in those moments sometimes guide how you end up feeling later on. Well, as a citizen who relies on work like yours, my expectation is not that you put it aside or that lawmakers put it aside. My expectation is not that there is an expiration date on this story. I actually think that we are so much worse off in America for our minimization skills and our compartmentalization skills. I think that's how we are still reckoning with race in the country. I think it's not great that we don't talk about 9-11 very often anymore and the trauma and the way we've reacted to that trauma. And so just for what it's worth, it feels really important to me that this not get put away neatly. In terms of both the substantive outcomes that make their way through Congress but also the dynamics and the relationships and the way that we speak about the press. I mean, it just breaks my heart that after at least four years, more like five of reporters being talked about like they are enemies instead of agents of democracy, and you're on the cusp of moving towards an administration that will at least do a press briefing, you know, and and not use that kind of language, that this culmination of all that language comes in in such a violent way. And so I think it's really important that we keep talking about it. There was a, one moment where, and I've kind of pulled back from it, but like there was a moment where, and you just you just touched on it, we go through the trauma together, but we deal with it alone. And that's something that, you know, reporters I didn't know well before who had to go through this were trying to rectify that sort of situation and be honest about just how we lost our sense of appetite for weeks, how our mm. bodies were were dealing with it differently or at different speeds, and that's okay. There was there were so many people reaching out to me individually that at some point on Twitter, I tried to put out how the trauma was personally affecting me. And the problem with that is, is that I, I talked about this feeling of being found. You know, I heard screaming outside my apartment. I ran to the window. It was a man trying to get a truck to fit through a tight alleyway. And I was sitting there thinking, like, is this someone who has found me? And mm-hmm. when I when I highlighted that, another colleague of mine emphasized it on, on social media. And then what we found was it attracted the wrong attention. So then mm-hmm. we're finding, like, Either the people who wanted to intimidate or to scare were were getting either ideas or thinking like, oh, then like we can still mess with them. And so it's made and that that really angered me because here we're trying to tell the story of just how how bodies respond when they go through something horrifying and we're we're still being told if you keep if you keep using your voice, if you speak then we'll still keep coming for you. And it didn't help that I had seen a parlor post about describing reporters as soft targets. And, you know, just for many of us who were in the Capitol, it just seemed to get worse and worse the more we saw with pictures and social media and videos. And so when we were sitting there thinking, am I overplaying my fear what I came out thinking was I probably under underplayed fear because I had no idea what was going on. And I kept thinking, it can't be that bad. It can't be that bad. It felt like for the last four years, anytime I would try to think, well, what's the driving force in terms of what's going on in Congress? The answer was always the president. Mm-hmm. As I'm listening to you talk about this, do you sense today, a couple weeks out, that this event is the driving force in terms of what's going on in Congress and that it will be? Or is there something deeper that is causing division even around this event? I think it's dueling um, because the insurrection came 
naturally at a weird time, which is that you have a new administration coming in. You have Donald Trump going out. He still has major influence over the party. And that's something that, you know, was clear after the election. If you have 74, 75 million voters voting for you, you still have a huge amount of support. So we knew we knew he's going to have influence, but you also have a new president coming in who has all these various ideas of what he wants to make change. And for him, this insurrection was completely, you know, changed the whole narrative of the start of this new administration that he was trying to make it about unity and the start of this year and his administration was anything but it's, it was a sign of disunity and, and just how far the political divide is, how disenfranchised people are, how rhetoric manifests into action in ways that we don't understand, you know, talking to very Trump Republicans, they go, I don't understand it. We hadn't had violence, you know, we hadn't had violence at any of these Trump pro Trump rallies before. I don't know why we had it now. But then you have police officers said, I don't know. It certainly looks like in, in previous marches that that there could be trouble. I don't know why it wasn't looked at earlier. So uh-huh. you're hearing hearing dueling ideas about where people are and you know, even before the election, there were talks about if Biden, you know, makes the country go into lockdown, people were throwing around the word civil war. Oh, we're going to go into a civil war. So I think like we have to do a much deeper dive into what state was our, our country at before the insurrection, because that will be telling of why the insurrection happened. Sometimes we, we run from, the stories that aren't being told, if they, they aren't, you know, it's not beneficial for Republicans to tell them, it's not beneficial for Democrats to tell them, and reporters don't necessarily see them. I just keep wondering, what are we missing? Well, I mean, I think part of it is they're not being told because they're hard to tell because there's not an easy answer. There's not an easy even narrative. I mean, I think that, you know, to a certain degree, both things are true. Yeah, there were Trump rallies that weren't violent. There was also a kidnapping plot against the governor of Michigan. You know, like there's lots of factors out there. And to me, looking at, you know, what did we miss in preventing it as opposed to like, well, what actually got us here? They're both really important angles to examine. And they're both really difficult to look at. Uh, You know, like this is really hard, painful examinations that we all have to go under on the top of an incredibly difficult four years, a global pandemic where everybody's margins are already very small, and then the trauma of the insurrection. I mean, it's a huge lift. It's a huge lift. Yeah. So, I mean, I hope that we're all, you know, the press corps is able to do that, that reporting justice. It's, um, I'm, I'm definitely interested to know, and I don't have all those answers where we're we're trying to sort out what, you know, environment plus people equals outcome sort of uh-huh. scenario. So, well, I hope, you know, we give a lot of grace on this show and I hope that you're giving yourself an enormous amount of grace because on top of what you went through, this Congress feels different to me than any Congress before for all those reasons we just listed. The politics has changed. The parties are shifting the way to be a congressperson, <laughs> it continues to shift. And so, I mean, I just think that it's one of the oldest institutions. And also it feels a little bit like the wild, wild west to me right now anyway. Yeah. You know, I don't have the answer, but something that I keep asking myself is what is the limit? You know, if, if we're not, mm-hmm. if we're not responding in a, an effective way to what happened on January 6th, is there going to be another January 6th, even though we, mm. we don't know when, we don't know how? Like, what does it take for the country to really examine what went wrong and how to fix it, rather than choosing political reality and strategy over how to steer the boat the best way? Olivia was one of the first reporters inside the Capitol to live tweet what was happening. And she shared with us that she found that focus to be a type of coping mechanism. It's also like a weird 
when that, all that was happening, I turned off the the text notifications on my phone uh, or Twitter notifications. And I was just live tweeting all of this. My family mm-hmm. jokes, you know, there's fight or flight. And then in our family, there's freeze. So my mom yeah. was under pressure. You know, I didn't know what I was going to respond like in that moment. And I found that if I focused on tweeting, I could keep my mom informed what was happening to me and my body. Mm-hmm. I could focus on something that wasn't just the entire scary scene unfolding in front of me. I could, you know, I had like a a mission that I set for myself. And then I have a a very good friend who goes, I completely broke down. And she goes, I didn't expect myself to be like that in in a moment of crisis. And I'm kind Mm -hmm, of, you know, mm -hmm. she was embarrassed. She was like, I I think I'd be better the next time. And I was like, I hope there's not a next time. But, you know, we, we learned so much about ourselves, not because we were trying to, but because we were forced to. And yeah, so it's, it's just sort of an interesting realization of who you are in a moment of crisis. And my legs, as soon as we're in the middle of evacuation, my body started giving out, my legs started shaking. And so I was able to hold on for some points and still be asking members questions. And then, you know, a few days later, there was so much pain in in my upper back and my, my hips, just because that was how the trauma was manifesting itself. We spend some time talking with Olivia about how every single person present on January 6th, from the people who work in the Capitol to politicians and their staff members to journalists, are still dealing with the trauma. All these people, they're all still dealing with it. They might not think they are, but they are. Just because, like, they've built it into a different political narrative doesn't mean that they didn't experience trauma. They did. I know that. I know that that's something that you can see even if they're not saying it, you can mm-hmm. see it with staffers, you can see it with, you know, members of Congress in various ways. You can tell it in the, in the tenor of someone's voice, trying to not give away just how shaken they are or angry mm-hmm. they are. So you definitely see that. Yeah. So I'm really grateful to be able to have this conversation with you too. We cannot express how deeply grateful we are to Olivia for having such an important, intense, and emotionally impactful conversation with us. When I was thinking about sharing this episode today, I remembered that a lot of people are in this like move on headspace and that hearing this discussion with Olivia Beavers, if you're already upset about the outcome, is not going to make you less upset. It's probably going to make you more upset. Sometimes I think we need to be more upset. And I think we especially Mm -hmm. need to be more upset in ways that help us consider new angles deal more resolutely with realities and stay Mm -hmm. motivated to be engaged. If that looks like recruiting new people to run for Senate in your state or for the House, I hope that that you're motivated. If it's corresponding with your legislators, letting them know how you feel, if it's writing op-eds, just talking to your friends and neighbors about what went down, I hope that you feel that motivation. And again, thank you so much to Olivia. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. 
that's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? I read a piece that put words around something that you and I've talked about before and I've been thinking about for a long time. And the phrase is revenge bedtime procrastination. And the idea that many of us, before we fall asleep, are lying in bed at night, scrolling through our phone, online shopping, playing games, social media, whatever, but we're doing it to carve out a little space where nobody is the boss of us. It's like this little place mm -hmm. where we get to just be humans, not parents, not workers, not part-time virtual school administrators, but just this space where we get to just be us and we're getting all that just us time out on our phones in a way that is not good for us. And we all know it, but we're not going to stop doing it because this is the one place where no one is the boss of us. It's so true. Listen, this reminds me of my friend who is a nutrition coach, and she talks about women have to have a space to rebel because women in particular are sort of rule followers. I mean, we are seeing the ways that women are propping up the world right now in the midst of the pandemic. And often they will use food as a way to rebel. So like, I know eating this pan of brownies is going to make me feel like crap. But I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. And she was talking about like you have to. It's really important. And I think the revenge bedtime shows it's really important for all of us, particularly in an incredibly stressful time like right now during the pandemic, to find like sustaining ways to rebel. So I have shared previously on the podcast that one of my ways to rebel is either to go to the movies in the middle of the day, which, again, not available to us right now, or to go out without a bra on because especially my southern grandmothers have just pounded into my head that got to wear a bra when you go out. So it's like a really fun way to be like just kind of like stick it to the man, man. You have to find that way to just stick it to people. And so I think the revenge bedtime is 100% true that it feels like you're sticking it like when you've spent the majority of your day with little to no control over how you spend your time and then now you've got this chance to be like oh no I don't have to follow the rules that tell me I should go to bed at the same time every night and then I should avoid blue light and then I should do all these I should have a nice good routine blah 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 blah, blah. I could do what I want and what I want is to scroll Instagram for an hour and a half. And it's not even that conscious, right? But for me, it's the feeling that I finally have a chance to just 
pay attention to what I want to pay attention to. This morning, I was trying Mm -hmm. to brush my teeth and put my clothes on and get ready for the day. And I turned on a podcast to listen to while I was doing that. 15 minutes into the podcast, I had paused it to say something to my children who kept coming in six times. Six interruptions Mm. in 15 minutes. And I'm going to start paying attention to that and sharing that data with them. I told them, Mm -hmm, it's not that mm -hmm. I'm uninterested in what you have to say. I'm very, very interested. I need us to combine it so that we can just have a Mm -hmm. conversation instead of a thought pops into your head and you come find me to share it. (laughs) And then another one pops into your head and you come find me to share it. This morning, while I was getting ready, my 10-year-old came into the bathroom and just stood and looked at me. And I said, do you need something? And she said, I just wondered what you were doing. And I said, I told you, I'm just going to get ready and then I'm going to come make you breakfast. But I cannot come make you breakfast if I cannot get ready. And I cannot get ready if you keep walking in. And so I think that revenge bedtime procrastination is really the place where I'm like, you know, if I want to read another article about freeing Britney Spears, I get to do it right now. I get to read it from start to finish. I know as I'm doing it because I'm going back to the same places, right? So I've checked my Twitter list, <laughs> and then I've gone to Instagram, and I've checked the two celebrity gossip accounts that I want to know if they've posted anything more. And then I've checked my email, and then I've checked Facebook Messenger, and now I'm like, well, I still want to numb out a little bit more and be in control. So I'll go back to the, inst- I go back to the Twitter list, and then I'll go back to the celebrity gossip accounts on Instagram, and I'm like, that's the moment where my head is like, there's this little quiet voice in my head going, hey, do you, hey, do you see what you're doing? I love you so much. Understand it. So much self-compassion. And also, can you see what you're doing here? (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, I can. And I'm going to do it anyway. So get out of my face. Little voice of conscience very quietly whispering to me that this is probably not making me feel better. Well, and I will say this to the kid interruption. I was able to articulate this to my, my interrupting child. Because I have realized that I've trained my children to when they open my door without knocking, which they seem incapable of learning not to do. They have learned if they knock and they open the door and I'm meditating, even the six or even the five-year-old to quietly close the door and leave, which feels like a massive victory. And I think it's because I was finally able to articulate to them, like, showing that you're interested in me and I'm interested in you is not only about sharing, but also about respecting boundaries. And that takes a lot of work to convey to a five-year-old. But it does seem like important. Like we have to teach them like the only way to show you love someone is not sharing, but also deciding not to share (laughs) at this particular moment in time. 100%. My 10-year-old talks about needing alone time. And it Mm -hmm, aggravates mm -hmm. my five-year-old so much. But I said to both of them this morning, we all need some alone time. And it feels like a luxury right now. And one way that we can show we care about each other is to say, you need to go shut your door for an hour. Do that. Do Mm -hmm. that. Go shut your door Mm -hmm. for an hour. I'll be fine here. I don't need you every second. That's a way that we show love. And I think you're right teaching that respect that we, that it's not that I don't like you and want to keep you away. It's that I really love you and I want to be my best self when we do interact. (laughs) But it is difficult. And Mm -hmm. it is difficult to remember that the revenge bedtime procrastination does not foster any of those objectives in the long run. It just makes us more tired (sighs) when we are interacting with our people. But I'm not sure I'm going to stop doing it. And I'm not sure anybody else is either. I wonder if we could just maybe it would be helpful if we just said this is what we do. We see that we're doing it. And so when we sit down in our beds, we're going to just set a 30-minute timer. We're just going to be like, okay, revenge bedtime. It's like, just schedule it. Maybe if there was like a a conscious scheduling and saying like, I'm going to do this for 30 minutes because I want to do it and I'm going to do it. But maybe if I could just have a little chime that reminds me like, you can do it, but you don't have to do it for an hour and a half. I wonder if that would be helpful. Maybe we could all try that. And then maybe just know, here's the thing I'm going to do for a few minutes after that to get myself into sleep. That's what's hard. That's what's hard is like, even in the midst of it, just being like, stop it, stop it, stop it. So I'll give myself the 30 minute chime on my procrastination and then I'll do the 10% happier 10 minute sleep meditation, something like that, Mm -hmm. like a little reward for upholding my chime and also helping me get to sleep. The bundling. It's the bundling. Do you do it together? And that helps you get the good stuff done because you've bundled it to the stuff that you know is not so great. Being a human is hard work. 
It sure is. And the bundling is what we hope that we do here. Even as we're slogging through Mm -hmm. the hard stuff politically, we try to bundle it with friendship and laughter and our whole lives instead of pretending like politics exists on an island separate from everything else. So we're so so glad that you're here with us. We hope to see you here again on Friday as we discuss the child tax credit proposals that are on the table and how those affect families, along with everything else that develops this week. Have the best week available to you. Pantsy Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. David McWilliams. Allie Edwards. Martha Brunitsky. Amy Whited, Janice Elliott, Sarah Ralph, Barry Kaufman, Jeremy Sequoia, Lori Ladau, Emily Neasley, Allison Luzader, Tracy Putoff, Danny Osmond, Molly Kors, Julie Haller, Jared Minson, Marnie Johansson, The Creeps, Tawny Peterson, Sarah Greenup, Sherry Blem, Tiffany Hasler, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Linda Daniel, Joshua Allen, and Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.